0: When I when I found this opportunity, there was a, it was a, an anthology. They were looking for writers. It was a, writers who were visually impaired or blind, writing about their own experiences. And I thought it was like a call from the universe, like okay, this is it now. Come on, you got to do it. So I always I've always found it really really difficult to advocate for myself. Um, I've always um, kind of tried to, to get by, to fit in, to, to pass, to, you know, and I can do that because until I can't, you know, and that's where the problems come.
1: Hey guys, uh, welcome to the Being All, All of Us podcast. It's great to be here with you today. Today I, I have a fun conversation with differently-abled Canadian author and Madrid resident Anita Haas. Anita and I talk about her origin story, um, about her parents' or her family's immigration to, to Canada. She talks about growing up with an invisible disability and what that was like. She also tells us about writing, her, her passion, <laughs> writing, I guess, basically as a way of healing. Um, it's, it's a really inspiring story. And I hope you guys really like it. And we end talking about her picture book, which is a completely different way of writing and experience uh, that she really enjoyed. And, and I hope that you guys will too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Anita Haas. Enjoy. And welcome to the Being All of Us podcast. Uh, my name is Brian David George, and it's a pleasure to be with you all today. We have a very special guest today, um, all the way from Madrid, Spain, it's Anita Haas. Anita, welcome.
0: <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah,
1: it's a pleasure. So um, Anita and I actually, uh, this is something I think it's interesting to know. So Anita and I know each other from uh, when we both used to teach together in Madrid, um, we were teaching English and North American culture <laughs> together mm-hmm. for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all I'm gonna say about you now, Anita, you tell us more about your story, please.
0: Okay, well, as they say, we're all work in progress, right? So uh, at this point, like, uh, I'm still, you know, working on it. But um, what I say in my mini bio is that I am a differently able Canadian teacher and writer based in Madrid. So that's in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll uh, talk a little bit more differently. Able, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But basically, I have um, a vision disorder. This is why I'm <clears throat> wearing sunglasses now.
1: So, just uh, anybody who who's not watching, which right mm-hmm. now nobody's watching us, nobody he's <laughs> wearing uh, dark sunglasses. Dark yeah.
0: sunglasses, yeah. And, uh, it's called achromatopsia, So I have no color vision. I have photophobia, um, very low visual acuity and, uh, a few other things that thrown into the bargain. Uh, also, uh, five years ago, I was very ill and I had, um, as a result of, um, septic shock, <laughs> which I didn't know what, what it was until after, uh, I got out of the hospital, uh, I had to have six fingers removed. So, um, so I am now uh, a finger amputee as well. So that's kind of interesting. It throws a different perspective on on, on things as well. Uh, as a writer, yeah. So I've been writing for several years now. Um, I've worked a lot with my husband, Carlos Aguilar, who is a film historian. He's written like dozens of books. And uh, so with him, I've written... Um, Few, several books on film and also uh, on flamenco, flamenco y cine, flamenco y jazz. I also have my uh, a book on my own about Eli Wallach, who was famous for the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly film. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a prologue by Clint Eastwood, which was quite oh, wow. Yeah. And
1: so that was exciting, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. How did, can I ask how um, did you get how did you get Clint Eastwood to do the prologue?
0: Well, it was thanks to Eli Wallach. Actually, told me call him, call them, and okay, um, uh, it was through the secretary. Of course, she just kind of dictated to me, so that was from. But I did get to speak to Eastwood a year later. Not a year later, a few months later, when Wallach came with his wife and daughter to film festival in Almeria, where we presented the book, and it just happened to be at the time of um, Eastwood's birthday. So they went to call him and uh they told me to tag along. And so I, I, I said, happy birthday, basically. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's very iconic. Yeah. Thanks. That's it. So, uh, that was an in- interesting experience. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: then, uh, I've also written, um, fiction, a couple of novelettes and lots and lots of short stories that have uh, appeared in, um, short stories and some poems as well that have appeared in magazines, mostly in the States, some in Canada and, uh, and in different places and in anthologies as well and uh, uh, a short story collection uh, but that only appeared in in Spanish but so they were translated um, usually I translate my husband's work and he translates mine so we work together on that
1: <laughs> so you your husband is a native Spanish speaker he's from Spain that's right yeah so yeah. you guys 100. cool so you translate each other's work
0: that's right that's nice.
1: <laughs> okay
0: and uh and yeah and then um the my latest work is the picture book which we'll we'll talk about a bit later
1: (laughs) so you mentioned uh publishing in Canada publishing in the U.S. we know that you're in Spain um from your accent I think people can probably determine that you were raised in an English-speaking place so would you tell us maybe a bit about how you ended up in Spain where you grew up
0: yes well um I think uh, I ended up in Spain because I, I've always kind of wanted to come to Europe, and I think that was um, something that came from my family too. My, my family history is a little bit interesting, and I think uh, it conditioned uh, my childhood a lot. My uh, my father is Germans from Munich. My mom is from Serbia, but it, from a German um, German speaking um town and so this is something that a lot of people don't know uh is that before the second world war there were like loads of even the cities and towns of german speakers even the names of the towns were german in eastern europe and that was a result of uh you know about 5 well it's like it, when there was the um, the wars between the Austri- Austro Hungarian Empire and the, and the Turks. And they so they drove the Turks out and then they filled up all this kind of space with uh, German speakers, like these, you know, the second sons or the ones who didn't have money. So they, they loaded up onto these boats and went down the Danube River and made settlements there. And they've been living there for hundreds of years and speaking German the whole time. Each one with their 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 special dialect. Each one with their customs, with their different food, and so on. And then after the war, um, after the Second World War, many of them were their land was taken away from them. Their property was taken away from them. And especially where my mom's family came from in Serbia, they they were exp- especially <laughs> uh, cruel. <laughs> they TTO camps. They uh, they put them all into concentration camps. So a lot of them died, and uh, but uh, luckily enough, my uh, great grandmother took my mom and her siblings, who were in the camps, and they escaped and they walked over. Um, they walked through Hungary and Romania uh, through the over through the night to Austria, where they were uh, refugees, and eventually they were reunited with my grandmother, who was also in a work camp, and my grandfather, who was in a prison camp. So they all came together, and. Uh, Eventually, they waited f- to be able to come to, to go to Canada as refugees. Um, so a lot of people don't, don't know about that. And it's, uh, it's I think it's quite interesting. So what happened then? Well, they went to Canada as refugees and they worked as farmhands, etc. And then just, you know, kind of worked their way up because they were farmers. And, uh, and eventually they ended up in the town of Kitchener, where I grew up. Now, Kitchener was uh, founded by German speakers. It was called Berlin before the First World War. After that, they changed it to Kitchener and Waterloo. their are two cities together. And... Uh, so there's there a lot of German-speaking heritage there, and there are also Mennonites. You can still see the Mennonites around on the farms with their their buggies and and their farms, the churches with all the horses and buggies outside. And, you know, they I remember them from when I was a kid. And so they also speak um, a German dialect. And... Uh, so after the second world war, a lot of these Germans who were displaced, German speakers who were displaced from Eastern Europe, they they flocked to the United States to, we have loads of cousins and second cousins in the States, South America, Australia, uh, and Canada. And this particular city attracted a lot of them because there was already that German speaking heritage there. So for me, that was really interesting. Um, now it's a it's a city of about two hundred and fifty thousand. At that time in the fifties and sixties, when all these uh, German speakers um, went there, there was it was only like sixty seventy thousand. So you can imagine there was really a strong German um, strong German force there, right? Yeah. And when I was growing up as first generation, along with a lot of other kids I knew, we um, we grew up there. Were four clubs. There are four German clubs in this town in the city. And each of them kind of represents a different area of uh, from where these these Germans came from. So my family used to go to the don't the Schwaben Club, which is which is Danube Swabians. So the Danube Swabians were the people who went down the Danube River and lived there for hundreds of years. So we grew up, you know, with the, the special. I went to learn special dances and, you know, the weddings were all celebrated there. Um, there are special festivals all the time. Then there are neighbors belonged to the Transylvania club because they were the Transylvania Germans. They had their own special customs and everything. Then there was the Concordia club, the Alpine club and so on. Also, um, my Saturday mornings were spent in German school. So and <laughs> So all the, the, I've heard other people do this too, like Nick Italian, first generation Italian, you know, Italian kids. And everybody had to go to their schools on Saturday mornings too. So we did as well. And there were three different German schools in my my city. Wow. And I really, I really liked it because you know you learned uh, a lot of the you know poems and songs and uh, the traditions. You know, I think it was one of the only ones who really enjoyed myself. (laughs) My brother hated it. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) So, how how is your German nowadays?
0: Well, not too well uh, because uh, you know I've been here for so many years now, like over twenty, and uh, I've I've kind of lost the the ability to to speak fluently. But I do understand everything. I watch movies all the time and. And I find myself uh, getting excited because I'm, I recognize words that I didn't think I remembered, you know, like, it's like, I always think of it as like looking in your closet for those shoes, you know, are there and you keep going, No, oh, no, not those shoes. Oh, no, not those shoes. Oh, there they are. And it's like, when you look for a word, you know. But it's, when it's that,
1: hidden in the back of the closet, right? right?
0: But when the shoes appear, you're like, wow, I forgot that I had those. Like, yeah, exactly. So that's kind of cool. And we, there were churches too. There was the, uh, the Catholic German church and the Lutheran German church. So I used to wow. go there as well. And yeah, I used to sing in the German church choir.
1: So does, does that, uh, I guess, German connection have anything to do with why you came to Spain or to Europe? I mean, how did you end well, I, up, in, how did you end up in, in Spain and Madrid and not in Germany?
0: Oh yeah. Well, um, basically, I think as a kid, I just really, really just wanted to go to. I just wanted to travel a lot. I, I, you know, in Canada, in like North America, you know how it is. Um, it's uh, the wide spaces. Uh, children are expected to play outside and to run after balls and and when you're you know you're sixteen, you you buy your car and you drive around and that's the only way to get anywhere really and uh, I always thought like there's got to be something beyond this, and I and you know what about those castles and those palaces and those <laughs> I loved history, the medieval history and everything. So I knew that I wanted to, I wanted to come to uh, <clears throat> to Europe, and uh, yeah, because I couldn't drive a car because of my vision and so on. So I wanted to find a place where you know I could move around without depending on people and and that was that was great. When I was in university then I remember I was just I was always my, all my friends were foreign students. I just you know I love meeting people and talking about their asking them about their country and, and their language and 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 so on. and uh, so eventually I made uh, some Spanish friends. And after I finished university, I went to I came to Spain to visit, and uh, I just said, "Wow, this is this is great! I love <laughs> this."
1: <laughs> and that um, was it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it. And um, so, yeah, I found uh, Madrid, for example, is the place you can you move around. It's very, very welcoming. It's a very welcoming city. <clears throat> and so, yeah.
1: So um, you were talking earlier about um, how you've written with your husband. Mm-hmm. Um, did did your passion for writing come before uh, you came to Madrid, or was that something you discovered while you were here in Spain?
0: No, no, I think it's ever since I was a little kid. Ever since I was a little kid, I, I just want, I, I loved reading. I was just one of those kids who was just in the library all the time, or they were in our house. There was a crawl space. It was nice and dark, <laughs> and I would go down there and all these books, and there were books about travel and books about other countries and books about. um, lots of different things. I remember one book that I carry with me everywhere I go, everywhere. This book will never, I will never lose. And it's called From Anna. And it's by um, Jean Little, who Hmm. who was uh, a blind uh, writer uh, from Guelph, Ontario, which is very near my town and where I went to university. And this book affected me so much as a child, because it was about a girl named Anna, very close, similar to my name, Anita, who came with her German family to Toronto after, no, before the war. I think it was before the war. And uh, she was visually impaired. And so it was all about her, you know, the family didn't know that she was visually impaired and they always, they called her, you know, like, oh, she's lazy or she's slow or she's this or she's that clumsy. And, and so And then finally, when they, when she went to a school for, you know, and they, they understood her problem and things started to change. It was, it was for me, I felt like, wow, this book is about me. (laughs) 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 I I carry it everywhere I go. I'll never lose that book. It was just wonderful. So yeah, I wanted to be a writer all the time. However, you know, how life kind of gets in the way. It's like, I had no idea. I do that when I came to Spain, you know, you I, I just looked for jobs. I became an English teacher, and that kind of took over my life really for for many, many years. Um, I always wrote, of course, um, in summer, you know, I in the in Christmas, I take notes all the time. I had ideas for stories. I've had there are stories that I'm completing now that I had ideas for decades ago. Wow. so. So, mm-hmm. exactly and so and it's wonderful and you think wow i finally finished that and it's amazing you know i, I started that story you know decades ago so yeah and then when i got to the, together with carlos it was amazing it was like wow this is a real writer he's a real writer and uh and so it was it was kind of magical
1: <laughs> so let's talk about your writing a little bit and and mm-hmm. I, I think I think it'd be interesting maybe to talk about a couple of your, just based on the book that you were telling me about now, we could start by talking about some of your short stories and then maybe talk about your the book that's coming out after that. Um, you know, I, I read two of your short stories, one called Life After Dark, and mm-hmm. the other one called Cool Dudes and Santas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that both of these books, uh, both of these stories appear in anthologies written by disabled authors. Um, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about one of the characters, Tom. Um, Tom suffers from a vision disorder. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about Tom and and the disorder that he's got? Yeah,
0: sure. Um, Tom has achromatopsia, and that's um, what I have. Now, the thing is, for years, people have. Well, for years, a lot of times friends said, but you should really write about your, you know, what you see and your eyes. And I thought, well, how, you know, that's kind of boring, you know, like somebody doesn't see color or whatever. But um, when I when I found this opportunity, there was a uh, it was uh, an anthology. They were looking for writers. Um, it was uh, writers who were visually impaired or blind writing about their own experiences. And I thought it was like a call from the universe, like, OK, this is it now. Come on. You got to do it. So I always, I've always found it really, really difficult to advocate for myself. Um, I've always, um, kind of tried to, to get by, to fit in, to, to pass, to, you know, and I can do that because until I can't, you know, and that's where the problems come. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so, I thought, well, since it's really hard for me to to explain my situation and to advocate for myself without sometimes maybe getting emotional or triggered or frustrated or accusing, sometimes I thought, let's write about somebody else. Let's invent a character. And I I uh, I mentioned uh, I chose um, a boy, a guy. He's a boy in the beginning, then because I thought. For for boys would be a little more difficult even than for girls because boys are are so um, you know they they're expected to play sports and to chase balls and to drive cars and to run after things. <laughs> and stuff. And Thank
1: so, God, all of that is changing. <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. But you know, it it happened, and so anyway, I'll I'll, I'll explain a little bit. Yeah, acromatopsia is like photophobia, which is the extreme aversion to light, um you know, so it means like outside on a sunny day, I'm perfectly blind without without my glasses. Um At the beginning of the story, it, it explains that Tom, uh, his friends play a trick on him and they take his they kind of all fall asleep after lunch and a couple of years and and they take it. They steal his glasses and and then he wakes up and he's like blind, He's totally blind. And it kind of describes how he can m- moves his way he's actually crawling along the the ground because the light is so piercing that um what happens it's like uh it's like a slideshow you when your eyes are open it's it's you can't see anything it's just a white blaze and then you have to close your eyes and that's when slowly the image you can slowly see the image before it fades opening them again and you open them again but the problem is that's okay if you're just sitting there and nothing's happening but if something there's something coming at you um you know it's got to hit you before you figure out that there's something coming at you it was coming you. yeah so uh so that's what, um photophobia is really like color blindness is total color blindness now it's not to be confused with um um color deficiency which is the red and green disorder that a lot of people have um total color blindness is a grayscale so anyone can can see what that what that's like if they look at a black and white photograph or watch a black and white film the visual acuity is 20 over 200 so it's like 10 percent vision there's a lot of I mean I see I think I see perfectly well <laughs> I look around me and I think I see you everything see whatever. what you see exactly right? I see what I see until somebody else comes along and says oh hey look at that and I'm like what are you talking about so obviously they see further than I do or something like that. Um, and, and yeah, so that's the, that's Tom's situation. That's what he.
1: And I, and I know there, uh, we don't want to spoil it for people who want to read the story. So I don't want to go into too much detail of the different things, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that, Tom. Um, uh, some of the challenges that he finds. And I think you've already mentioned some of them actually like not being able to drive, um, And about what it's like when, how you see light or how, how light affects your, your vision. Um, is there anything that you, that you see from Tom's stories that you, that you'd really like to share that you've, or maybe something that you found really fun writing about, what was it like for you writing these stories about Tom?
0: It was, it was, it was an amazing experience because it was, uh, I had to examine go back over my life and, um, and it maybe things that I didn't even want to look at anymore. um and and also too, sometimes it I found that there were maybe certain situations that could help me explain in general what was happening. For example, i t- I talked about how he got a job in the library and uh, this is totally based on facts, right? I right. So Tom was uh he went a job in the library he was really excited because he loved books and it was a nice darkish place and there was not a lot of light he didn't have to see colors didn't have to drive anything and he was like ecstatic right so there he goes with his three three-tiered cart and he thinks okay great yeah I can see i can see the numbers on this on the spine of this book you know yeah. you hold it to your face and i just have to stick it on the shelf well the thing is that yeah you have to see it when it's from your face you can do that if you can hold it to your face but then now you got to find where to put that so um you he could see what the the shelf that was right in front of his face but the shelf above it you'd have to get up the ladder and then when you're up the ladder you realize oops no it's maybe a little bit further down so you get down the ladder you move the ladder you get up the ladder again oops still a little further down so you get down the ladder get up the ladder again. oh and then oh no it's on the top shelf well what do we do now will you pull the books off the top shelf Hold them in front of an inch away from your face. Look at, it. Oh, no, move down a little bit further. Pull the book down again. If they're, t- if they're lower than eye level, then he had to stoop down and on the bottom, on the bottom shelf. You'd practically have to lie on the floor to find it. So after, you know, finally he got his whole cart all shelved and he was so proud of himself when he wheeled it back to the manager and the manager was furious because he took five times longer than everybody else. Everybody else had, you know, sell four or five carts. Well, he'd been doing one. And when he tried to explain to her, he was mortified, like, oh, God, you know, here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> and uh, he tried to explain to well, you know, I don't know if they told you, but like, I don't see very well. And this is where often um, people with acromatopsia, and I've read this in a lot of, not just me, <laughs> a lot of other, a lot of other um, testimonials, is that we, we don't look, like what people expect visually impaired people to look uh, like. So, what does what a visually at,
1: impaired person look like?
0: I don't know. I imagine <laughs> that you know you're like feeling things, or you can't, or you're bumping into things. I don't know what right. people think, but I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose I'm just as guilty about that uh, in some cases. And so. Tom's are trying to explain to her that he can't see. And she sees Tom. And like Tom might remember from the story, he's a weightlifter and he's a really big guy. And, you know, and and she's like, oh, Yeah, right. You know, you're telling me now that. And she just thinks that he's like slow or something's kind of wrong with him mentally, or or he's lazy, or he was goofing off, or something. And this is something that often happens, right? People, they you don't fit into the picture people have and so just well like what what we were talking about before that sometimes you you have to kind of act the way you think people so there's a lot of what they what I call faking what um some other people call masking so sometimes you mask you try to get by especially when you're a a kid in school you try to fit in as, as well as you can so oftentimes you don't ask for help or you don't or you don't uh, call attention to yourself because you don't want to, you don't, you want to fit in. Um, I remember Tom, as a, as a child in school, the, the teachers put him in the front row because teachers thought, okay, that's it. Young know, parents told me put them in the front row. Problem solved. Well, nobody can see, no acrobats can see the board from the front row. I, anyway, so what they do is to not disappoint the teacher who thinks they're doing such a good job. <laughs> they just, they just, Get by. So there's a lot you develop listening skills, really good listening skills. You develop really good memorizing skills. Oh my goodness! But again, until it doesn't work. So I remember when in grade eight I had a teacher who was wonderful because he used to read as he wrote notes on the board, and I was like, great. So I was like, (laughs) just listening and writing what he was saying, and then sometimes he would stop. I don't know why. He'd just stop and he'd stop for. Half a board, and I'd be leaving this space oh, <laughs> on your
1: page to fill my in. Page,
0: you know, and I like waiting for him to start reading again, and it, you know all these kinds of things that, as a kid, you just you don't want to because you think adults know the best, teachers know best, and it's so difficult to advocate for yourself because often they just don't believe you.
1: Hmm. I feel like <laughs> um, kids nowadays probably I, things. I, Ah, we're lucky in so many ways because there is more awareness of different abilities, and teachers yeah. are becoming more and more um, not only aware, bec- there's training for teachers to, to learn how to be more inclusive. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I couldn't help hear the entire time that you were talking about fitting and fitting. And I can't help thinking about, again, well, the first thing that comes to mind, and it's Brene Brown that I heard it from, I'm not sure if it's hers or not. The opposite of belonging is yes. fitting yes. in. Yes, yes. Yes. So the yes. more that we try to fit in, the less that we actually belong. You know, right. and it's and it's it's so. I think it's really powerful to understand that and and to to tell that story. You know, so that Tom or Anita or whoever, fitting in is not the answer. <laughs> Trying to pass is not the answer. It just causes, mm-hmm. um, well. Um, it makes sure that therapists have lots of work. To do. <laughs> They're going to be you know, well employed for many years. The more that we try to fit in, right? that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's a fun, it's a fun way of of talking about something difficult, which is trying to mm-hmm. Finish,
0: mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. self
1: advocating. Um, and so, I, I really think that these stories are are great ways to talk about um, something that you know some people might find difficult to talk about in first person. So I think it's, it's amazing that you have found writing as a way to talk about, um, invisible disability and, and just to, I guess, to raise awareness about yeah uh, what it's like for, for an acromat. You
0: know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. acromat
1: um, yeah. Maybe we could talk about your picture book that's coming out soon. Okay. Um, no, it's,
0: it's, it's been out. Oh, it's it's out. been out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell it's us about.
0: Yeah a year already. It's Chato. I'll show it just in case. Um,
1: so if you're listening, I'm mean, going to describe so what, what we're we seeing.
0: It's a cat. bilingual Whoops. book. Yes. It's a bilingual. You flip it's it over.
1: Chato El Perrigato or el Chato Puppigato. the Puppy Cat. Chato the
0: Puppy Cat. Yeah.
1: And there is a cover of a little sad looking dog <laughs> yep. um, who has got uh, a feed bowl above his head. Um, and this illustration was is yours, isn't it?
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That's so, a tell cat. us a, a bit about Chato.
0: Okay, so Chato, this is one of these stories that I've had in my head for decades, right? So, um, and you know, it was just something that I kept putting off because children's, really, children's book uh, writing is is a, it's a whole. Different world from everything that you know. I you know, publishing for adults is difficult, but publishing for for kids is just it's just a whole different different world. So, for years and years, I was trying this and that. There was um, I, it was accepted and and another children's book I'm working on now were accepted about five years ago in in um a place um that had published some of my novelettes already, but then they closed because of COVID. It's a long, 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 long story that I won't even go into, but. It was a story that came to my mind years ago and it was just rhymed. And it was a story about a little dog, a homeless dog who was looking for a home and a little old lady who was looking for a cat. So and then there's the whole conflict that comes out of that. She she wants him to be a cat. She believes that he's a cat. He he's like confused, like this lady has a problem. Um, how can I make her love me? You know, so she's kind of she's always criticizing him because he doesn't meow, he doesn't purr, he doesn't look this Like, what's what kind of cat are you? And he's like, I'm not a cat, I'm a dog. And uh, but he keeps thinking, well, I mean, I don't want to be back on the street, so I've got to do everything I can to be the best cat in the world. And so you can we'll tell you the ending,
1: but uh, that's without spoilers, is there a happy mm-hmm. ending? Can you tell us that much?
0: No, I can't tell you that much oh. <laughs> because there's only <a> two <laughs> possibilities, right? <laughs> but okay. um, uh, I would say that yeah, it was uh, a story that I thought this is like perfect. This is all about acceptance and tolerance and living your truth, and this is so much about like what I would like to convey, and so. Um, you know, just a, a couple of years ago, I thought, well, you know what, the, I have to do this. So just got, I have to do this, and uh, I thought since I live in Spain, I like to see if I can do this in Spanish. But I thought, you know, I want to do this. I don't want my husband to translate it, like like he's done longer longer works of mine um and I thought well then I'm gonna do it in rhyme as well just like in English so that was it was a really interesting it was like my brain firing off when I listened to German movies you know um all these little you <laughs> like these neurons <laughs> wow this word rhymes with that so it's the same story of course some things are a little bit different because you can't rhyme in this the same words in both languages but um it uh it's basically the same story and uh I thought, well, this is going to be really my work, so I I did the illustrations as well. The illustrations are in black and white; they're in pencil because I don't see color. So, this was something too. I thought, you know, children they want to see color and so on. I thought, well, you know what? I didn't see color, <laughs> and uh, I was a kid, um, right. so I had a really a really good time. Um, our our publisher um, did a really good job designing it with uh, little borders and that, and so I decided to. Um, since I am um, i I love cats I love animals in general I've always uh, donated money to animal rescue so I decided to join these two projects of mine and what I did is I, gone I've been collaborating with different animal rescue organizations and we've uh, done presentations and the books that sell go to their um, their association so I've presented in lots of places already in, in bar, near Barcelona, San Gugat in uh, Madrid, in uh, well, in in schools and libraries and bookstores and the kids, uh, the kids really react well. I think they really get into it. And there's um, a, a presentation coming up in October, October 5th in, uh, a bookshop called secret kingdoms and it's an english bookshop a new one in madrid and Mor- Moratín. so if anyone listening we'll is around up. we'll yeah. link up some details in the show yeah. notes on
1: that yeah
0: and yeah the prophets so the prophets know the proceeds will go to um which is an interesting thing because it, mm-hmm. it was a magical coincidence that there was a uh, an uh, animal rescue organization with the same name as the title of the book as if wow. it were <laughs> if it were written for that purpose or what wasn't it, it was a complete coincidence. so uh, wow. so that that was wonderful. And uh, yeah, it's just been a wonderful experience. And we sold so many that we had to make a second edition. So the second edition came out about three months ago. So there we are with that one.
1: That's, that's really, I, I really, um, I like the story. I, I love the synchronicity where, you know, the, the association just kind of happened to have the same name as yes. you know, part of the book title. Yes. That's, that's really cool. Um, and, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the book before we go. Um, you were talking about how it helps to, um, I guess to raise awareness of tolerance, you No know, of, hmm. of differences um so my question for you anita would be <laughs> <laughs> how, can, how can we move into a future And this is basically just your opinion so like there's no right or wrong answer how do you imagine us moving into a future where we go from tolerance of difference to celebration of difference to really you know understanding that through our diversity through our difference is where we are amazing and beautiful and talented and you know that's that's why we are such an amazing world planet species is because of our difference. So how do you think we're going to get there (laughs) from tolerance to celebration?
0: Wow. Or how would you like, how would you like (laughs) us to go there?
1: What would your little um, two cents worth be?
0: Okay. I think that maybe it just starts with each of us ourselves. Like doing, um, like I said, that my personal journey now, and I'm on the journey. I'm not an expert. I don't know how to, um, how to, advocate for myself very well. I'm discovering that now. And I'm discovering that maybe in writing, um, I'm able to um, convey some of the situations that in my my situation. And maybe for me through writing, um, I can reach people and make them Feel like they can advocate for themselves too and maybe and maybe inspire them to also find a way for themselves to inspire and maybe other people will read them and then become a little bit more open-minded and maybe look for you know even even visible disabilities we still we still have uh, problems with empathy you know like often we think oh she's in a wheelchair well that's fine problem solved well no well, there's still a lot of problems that she has after that or right. you know or people who park in the in the disabled spot and then you think oh well they're perfectly fine they they're not disabled well you don't know what their what their life is like inside maybe they're suffering from chronic pain you know, just a little bit more empathy and like i say maybe each of us to, to 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 ourselves to stop listening to those voices that say oh well you know what do you have to say you know oh, just stop don't make a fuss out of th- uh, over things you know just uh, just owning you know, so-
1: our truth <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. and celebrating our own difference, That's
0: right? And right? That's... Uh, and then maybe you know everybody can slowly mm. do that as well.
1: That is, and is that the right answer? <laughs> <laughs> That's your right answer, so it's perfect. Um, Anita Haas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been uh, a real pleasure having you here on Being well Being All of Us, and we will have all the information about um, your writing in mm-hmm. the show notes linked up. Okay. Okay. Thank, Thank you so you much, mind.
0: Anita. All right,
1: bye. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation and that you found it both inspiring and interesting. Um, do be sure to check out Anita's work in the show notes. We've got some links there, and if you happen to be in the Madrid area, um, stop by that book opening. So for now, see you later. Hasta luego. Enjoy.